0: Welcome to The Prep School, a Franklin Medical Reserve Corps podcast where you'll learn how to be prepared through entertaining education, produced in the media studios at Greenfield Community College in lovely rural Western Massachusetts, near Vermont and not far from upstate New York, not the Berkshires, but real close. And here's your host, Denise Schwartz. My name is Denise Schwartz, and today I'm talking with Dr. Ruth Pote. She's a board-certified family physician and an addiction medicine physician, and she works right here in Western Massachusetts. She is currently the medical director for the Franklin County House of Corrections. She's the director of addiction services for the Behavioral Health Network. She's the medical director for the Pioneer Valley Regional School District, and she's the co-chair of the Healthcare Solutions Committee of the Opioid Task Force here in Franklin County in the North Quabbin region. Dr. Poti is well known in this area, especially for her discussions about addiction, and that's what we are going to explore together today. Hi, Dr. Poti. How are you? Hi, Denise. Thanks for having
1: me. I'm glad to be here.
0: I'm glad you're here too. So, there's so much that we can talk about on this subject, but I thought that we might start by talking about something that all humans have in common, something that we all have in our brains, and that's one of my favorite things to talk about, and don't ask me why, but that's dopamine. Now, what I understand is that dopamine is a neurotransmitter, and it's made in our brain, and being a neurotransmitter, that means that it transmits messages between nerve cells And the rest of our body, is that right?
1: Yeah, it transmits between two different nerve cells. And and dopamine specifically gives you a sense of pleasure and reward, and that was a great thing. And it mostly tells you to repeat the behavior, because in general, from an evolutionary standpoint, you need to repeat the behaviors that dopamine gives you. Things like finding good food, finding water, procreating, setting genetic material forward to have young. Because... From an evolutionary standpoint, our job is to stay alive long enough to create generations ahead of us. That's true for all insects, animals, mammals, anything uh, that is our job. And so our goal is that. The problem is there's so many other things that can spike dopamine in your brain, some of which are really healthful, some of which are not as healthful. And, And we all participate in this. So I think one of the reasons I like... Um, the work of addiction is that I think all of us struggle with our own addictions and behaviors that are uh, tendencies towards addictions. If we can just acknowledge that, it just makes us all sort of be able to have empathy and for others who struggle with more severe disease. Um, we can be present with them.
0: Well, that's important, and I know that when we talk about addictive substances, we're not just talking about hard drugs. We can talk about things like, and I'm going to say this for a reason, sugar and cookies, because you have disclosed in some of your presentations that you have been addicted to sugar, and let me tell you, so have I. Yes, it's a hard (laughs) one, right? A
1: lot of us have been. Um, Yeah, I think if all of us can just pause for a second and think, what is it I struggle with? Is Is there a behavior that I have that actually... makes me feel actually unwell or I know it's bad for my health, but I can't change that behavior. Whatever it is, it's often very simple things like those of us that drink soda or drink sugary drinks or drink alcohol, even in any amount or even in excess, and we think, boy, that was a bad idea. I wish I hadn't done that. I'd like to change that, but I'm having a hard time changing that behavior. I think that is this thing that so many of us struggle with. For me and for you, it is sugar. I love sugar. I love chocolate chip cookies. I love chocolate um, I love to bake, and I buy pounds and pounds of sugar at my house because I bake and I crave it. I know it's not good for me; it makes me feel bad, it gives me my worsened arthritis, etc. But all of us—it's hard for me to find somebody who doesn't have a behavior that they wish they could change. And yet, if it were easy to do, we would have all done it. And instead, it's hard to do.
0: Why is it so hard? I mean, is that part of the scientific thing
1: that you can tell us a little bit about? How does
0: it? What does it do to our bodies? What does? Where do cravings start?
1: Well, you know, most of it does end up in the dopamine system. There's some pathways in the brain that are more complicated, but the most simple way to think about it is that all the addictive substances and behaviors, whether it's that you can't help yourself to look at your phone every time it buzzes or every night you have to like clear your Twitter account or make sure that you've done all your social media, even though you know that turning on that screen prior to bed is not good for your sleep quality. And in fact, all of us are spending way too much time on a screen. Like all of us should limit it tremendously and we can't control that. Like there's this behavioral pattern that we lock ourselves into Even if it's bad for our health, we still do it. Our teenagers are particularly susceptible to it because they have these growing, developing brains, and their brains are constantly trying to sort out and figure out what to groove down, what to commit to, where to do some pruning back. So that's why those brains are so vulnerable to addiction, whether it's to a screen, to their phone, to a behavior, to sugar, to marijuana, nicotine, alcohol, any of those things, all addiction starts while the brain is developing. It's considered a pediatric developmental disorder. And it has to do with what you said in the beginning, which is dopamine, right? Dopamine Mm -hmm. gives you the sense of reward. And sometimes that reward from eating that cookie is very brief. Like most of us eat that cookie without even thinking about eating that cookie. We get joy and pleasure for three seconds during the first bite, and it doesn't matter whether the joy is gone, we're absolutely going to finish the cookie. When do we eat one bite and put it down? I never do. Neither In fact, do I go I. back for cookie number two where I actually don't get the same amount of joy from, but I did it anyway.
0: Is that something that can happen? So let's just talk about the cookie, and then we can talk about other things, that, you know, the things that are heavy, heavy-duty addictive substances. Oh, I'm not saying that sugar is not, but if we do enjoy that cookie, and then we want to have the second one, and we know... Oh, you know, I really don't want this, but yeah, I'm just going to eat it anyway. What is that little brain thing that's happening there? Why is our that Why is that telling us that, oh, just go ahead and do it anyway?
1: Mm-hmm. Do you know? Well, actually, I don't know if I know that one exactly, except that, again, your brain is, is from a design point through the 200,000 years that we've been living in these bodies and brains. The intention is to find food, find water, find a mate, procreate, send genetic material for it. So these are places where you're supposed to have a natural spike of dopamine that then returns to normal. Th- that brain development developed in a world there where there wasn't ultra processed foods or sugar, or heroin or fentanyl or nicotine or quite honestly even then two hundred thousand years ago not alcohol alcohol was the first sort of early substance that was um, available because we, there was a lot of alcohol consumption long ago. But again from an evolutionary standpoint, eating that cookie seems like it makes a lot of sense. Except back in those days, that kind of cookie didn't exist. We're surrounded 80% of our food sources, ultra processed foods in that those ultra processed foods are actually designed to spike the dopamine reward circuit. They're designed to be addictive, right? I mean, oh, so that we have more of them and so we oh, buy more apps, of them. All of that, all of that, right? The average apple that's coming out of Clarkdale Orchards is not actually an addictive substance, even though it has natural sugars in it. It doesn't sort of latch on and make you think, "I crave an apple. I must have an apple," even though it's bad for me. I need to have a hundred apples a day. Mm. We don't know people eat a hundred apples a day. <laughs> Um, so, you know, really great healthy whole foods, most of which cost a lot more money than the heavily processed gas station foods, those are less uh, have less dopamine spikes. But intentionally designed in the food system is incredibly non-nutritive foods that do spike and crash your dopamine system, and, and they just hook you onto it. Talk about the spikes and the crashes a little bit,
0: not just in terms of sugar, which I think we all can really learn something from, but what about in terms of folks who are doing different kinds of, um, addictive substances, maybe cocaine, maybe they're smoking a lot of marijuana. What does that do for the spikes in the, the, the valleys?
1: Yeah. The thing is about dopamine is that the first time you do it is when you'll have the highest high, um, in terms of a dopamine. And then after that, as, as you return to it again and again, the dopamine spike, uh, decreases the sort of the, the elevation isn't there. In that process, the downgrading makes you keep wanting to return to it. What happens with actually the more addictive chemical substances, whether we're talking an opiate or cocaine or methamphetamine, is that when you don't do it, you start to feel bad. So it's not just that you no longer get the high, it's that you no longer feel normal and that people continue to use substances because they feel sick. Nicotine, right? When people don't smoke cigarettes and yet they're addicted to nicotine, they will feel bad. Their partners and family will say they feel bad. They're irritable, they're anxious, their sleep quality is poor, it doesn't feel good. And there's a fix for it. If you just smoke, it's improved. So your brain is saying, you feel bad. I know how to make you feel better. Go do that thing. And so you take another one of your 20 cigarettes of the day and you feel better. And every 45 minutes, you need it again and again and again and again. And it's like that with all other substances. Again, for folks who are listening to this, I actually think many people, if you're willing to pause and acknowledge that we're all, you know, vulnerable humans who have our, all of our own fragilities and all of our own addictive behaviors, you have things that also drive you that you wish you weren't doing. And yet you can't help yourself. You continue to do it, even though you know, it's bad for your health. You know, cigarette smoking has gone down to the lowest rates in the entire country. Franklin County, though, still has the highest rates of cigarette use of all the counties in Massachusetts. Oh, no kidding. Why is that? You know, I don't have the answer exactly what why Franklin County. I think oftentimes it's in a socioeconomic situation where the second poorest county in Massachusetts, right. the poorest county is actually Hampton County. I think there's a, 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 that is at play. I think there's all kinds of other, both genetics and racial issues at play. I think sort of availability of cheap cigarettes right across the border in New uh, Hampshire plays a role. You know, one of the reasons that Massachusetts overall is a low smoking state compared to other states is we heavily tax our cigarettes but we're just south of a state that doesn't tax their cigarettes. So people drive to New Hampshire and buy cigarettes, and we're right on the border. So I think there's a high availability of a cheaper product. As they do for alcohol. No, I
0: I know in some of your presentations you talk about alcohol and you feel that it is the biggest problem globally because it is so available everywhere, and it is so highly addictive.
1: Yeah. Um, I think nicotine as a killer is the... it's, as a global issue and a national issue, it's the number one killer in our country. Tobacco cigarettes. Um, it's the leading cause of heart disease and cancer. So if I were to rank a number one, it would be tobacco. But the problem, and I think if you ask any kid, if you ask any adult, they know cigarettes are bad. There's, There remains this mythology that alcohol is good for you, that it's heart protective, that it does good things, it brings down your cholesterol. None of that is true, right? When they actually go back and look at the studies on alcohol, the ones that showed there was some positive benefit towards alcohol were funded by the liquor industry. So once you shove those studies to the side, um, there's really no health benefit to alcohol. And... More of us drink more alcohol than we should. I mean, the amount of alcohol that the average woman should drink in a given day, in a given week, is very low. And in fact, most of us, when we drink, drink way more than that. So every single day, for those of us that drink, we're pouring a bigger pour than we should. We're having more than is, is really recommended. Canada came out with its guidelines very recently, about uh, two months ago, and and their latest guidelines out of Canada say, really, there's no amount of alcohol that's safe to drink. I did read that, and I think
0: there was an article either in the Globe or the Times about how, Um, Women have been targeted in terms of of the marketing for alcohol with, you know, labels, labels that are, you know, and and titles for wine, like, you know, uh, Mommy's Little Helper. No, Mm -hmm. I think that was drugs. And I think that was a long time ago in a novel written by someone. But, you know, really targeting women so that when they have a hard day, they come home and they pour themselves a glass of wine and they feel like that's just a, a good way to relax. Yeah.
1: I think if you ever think you're driving home from work and you're thinking, I need a glass of something, uh, that is yeah. the first sign that you're self-medicating, and you need to find a healthier solution to feeling stressed, tired, overwhelmed, overworked, all the ways that so many of us feel, but mm-hmm. I would argue as a working mom, we all feel uh-huh. as, as, as parents. Um, And that turning to alcohol to help you relax or to help you sleep or to help you with anything is a really bad idea. And I I speak as somebody, I drink alcohol. I I don't have an alcohol use disorder. But what I've learned over many years is it actually does make me feel not great as I've aged, particularly postmenopausal. It makes me feel even worse. It really disrupts sleep. And I think more and more of us need to take a step back and drink less and less. And most days should be no alcohol days. And that when one has a drink, you should really have one drink and know what one drink really means. It's 1.5 ounces of hard alcohol. It's 12 ounces of a 5% beer. It's harder to find a 5% beer. And you really need to know what you're pouring into your wine glass because we often pour wine glasses that are really equivalent to two glasses of wine.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about some other kinds of substances. You know what i i I want to talk about fentanyl. I don't know that much about it. I understand it is like such it's such a substance it's a substance that is so easily addictive. Can you talk to us about that and what we see in this area in terms of fentanyl use?
1: Mm-hmm. So fentanyl is an opiate, like all opiates. It's a what we call as a, a synthetic opiate. It's manufactured and it's a, a lab. It's not grown in a field. In the old days, we talked about heroin. Heroin actually does come from poppies that are grown in fields in Afghanistan and Mexico and other places. And, and heroin really as a product in the U.S. doesn't exist. It, it exists maybe in some markets in small percentages. The entire opiate, illicit opiate drug trade available on any street corner in any county in any state is fentanyl. And why is that? Well, because fentanyl's really cheap to make. It's made in a lab. It doesn't involve army helicopters, you know, spraying down herbicides. It doesn't involve hectares of of land or water or anything that has to do with trying to grow something in a world that has climate change and, and things that are unpredictable. It's a way of being a farmer that says, I don't want to have to farm poppies anymore. I'm just going to walk into my um, lab in the kitchen with really cheap ingredients and make a product that doesn't cost a lot of money and I can sell it for more money. The problem with fentanyl, I think probably a lot of the listeners know this, is it's 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin. So that's a big jump in potency. It's made the drug supply, uh, both locally and then nationally, really toxic um, really, really dangerous with much greater overdose rates. So we've been dealing with fentanyl in our drug supply in Massachusetts since 2016. That's when you really start to see the spike in overdose deaths. The rest of the country got hit with fentanyl really hard about three years ago. So the rest of the country is now catching up with us. And if you look at the statistics on overdose deaths nationwide, I mean, the numbers keep going up and up and In Massachusetts, the latest numbers from 2022 show also an increase in overdose deaths. One of the good pieces of news that we have is actually a 25% reduction in our county. Um, It was one of only three counties where there was a reduction, but both Berkshire County and um, especially Franklin County had significant reduction in overdose deaths.
0: Why is that?
1: I think it's multifactorial. I think that the opiate task force and the level of concern that our community has shown towards people who struggle with substance use at the community level, at the street level, at the community health center level, at the hospital level, at every level, we have created a system that tries to help support people um, to maintain recovery. We have treatment highly available, whether it's buprenorphine or methadone or other of the agonist treatment, we get it uh, with fairly low barrier access to people better than other places. We've worked really hard on that. Our little local jail was the first licensed methadone clinic jail in the entire country. That is in Greenfield, Massachusetts, and that's thanks to a great sheriff um, and sort of the decision that if you're going to arrest people and if you could acknowledge that most people who are incarcerated in this country are there for a substance-related disorder, alcohol or opiates or something else, or they're there for a mental health disorder, Mm -hmm. then our jails need to be treatment centers that focus on substance use and focus on mental health disorders. And that's not what most jails are.
0: Would that be very hard to convert what jails are now to something that's more like, that includes more mental health? No, I I don't
1: think it's hard to do. We did it in Greenfield. So if we can do it in the little town of Greenfield, Massachusetts, my argument is that any jail at any level, at the federal level, the state level, the county level, could also do it. We are not a rich county. I already said we're the second poorest county. And we have a little rural jail that does extraordinary work. And we have, again, we do all the treatments for all the addictions, and we do great mental health care, and we have great behavioral health treatment. We actually have evidence-based treatment meeting the needs of the people in front of us, and we do great reentry planning so we can get them back into life, producing, paying taxes, working jobs, connecting with their families, keeping them out of jail. Jail costs a lot of money. I would rather that money go to the public schools.
0: You know, you said that our community is really supportive of people who have um, substance I'm sorry, I forget your terminology, but the substance abuse issues or problems. I remember something that you did in one of your presentations. It was, you presented two photos. One was of a man who was in a hospital bed with an IV. Another was of a young woman who was laying on the floor in disarray, and it looked as if she was, um, she had overdosed. I was really struck by the those two photos side by side and what you said about that and who those people were. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. I, I, I actually, um, I've been giving talks in the community for over 10 years out to high schools or to judges or to probation officers actually all over the country. And, and I actually think what that slide that you remember is one of the more uh, potent communications I have with people is mm. to talk about the disparity in care that we provide people who actually have similar backgrounds and why why it is that we stigmatize people who struggle with drugs and alcohol and how we don't stigmatize the rest of us who also have different kinds of struggles. So in that story, I talk about a man who had a massive heart attack that morning and the care that he was provided. A, a guy who's, who's having crushing sternal chest pain in his living room and EMS gets him and brings him to the hospital and then they realize that the local hospital really can't manage this and they race him down to the big tertiary care hospital where he has a quadruple bypass oh. and admissions and ICU stay, and depression, and physical therapy, and cardiac rehab, and all the things that need to happen for him because that's what should have happened for this man. And we spent a lot of money, right? Quarter million dollars, $400,000, a lot right. of money to help him. And yet his next-door neighbor who struggles with the substance use disorder has a serious overdose, and she's given almost no medical care at any level of care. And yet when you pause and ask yourself, why did this guy have a heart attack? Well, he has a heart attack, well, for lots of reasons, but some is genetic. Some is the fact that he smoked. Some is that he, you know, drank 12-pack a day. He didn't exercise. He had bad... um, A highly ultra processed food diet, like all these things that actually some of which were in his control. And yet we didn't look at him in his living room or at the hospital and wag our finger and say, you're an addict. You're addicted to sugar and salt and fast food chemicals and nicotine and alcohol. And you're definitely not addicted to exercise, right? We didn't do that. But so many of us who struggle with chronic health conditions, have behaviors that helped cause those conditions. And instead of, I'm not telling everybody, listen to this, to feel bad or feel shamed or feel like I'm a bad person. Instead, we should all acknowledge that it's hard to be human and live a really healthful life Mm. and that the people who struggle with addiction, whether it's to opiates or cocaine or alcohol, deserve the same level of care and the same non-stigmatizing, non-judgmental, evidence-based care that anybody who would show up with a massive heart attack should get.
0: Now, how do we change our thinking about that? I remember when I saw those two photos, my first thought was, oh, this person's getting the help he needs and looking at that other person. And I'm, I'm sort of ashamed to say it now, but my first thought was, oh, look at that. Look at what happened to her. Yeah. I think that was the point you were trying to make with showing people those two photographs. How can we become more empathetic and more sympathetic towards people who have these substance abuse issues, problems. I still don't remember your terminology. Yeah, substance use disorder, substance S-U-D. Substance use disorder. Yeah. How, can we, how can we become kinder?
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing, Denise, is to be kind with yourself. So for you and me to be kind with ourselves about our cookie cravings as soon as we wake up. I want chocolate after every meal. And in fact, I most often administer chocolate after every meal. It's like a palate cleanser, right?
0: Oh, there you go. Yes. Mm -hmm. And
1: just to have like acknowledge that that is the weakness that you and I have. And I can acknowledge very clearly, it's not good for my health. It actually makes me feel worse. Right. And say, how, what if I really want to change it? What does it take to change it? It's hard to change it. I've done it before. It's not easy. And then is that what you want to do? And so again, Self-love and self-empathy and compassion matter first. Secondly is just to acknowledge all the people you love or have known over so many years who've struggled. In your own family, people who drink too much and you wish that you could change them, and yet who can change them? Only they can change them. Um, Friends or family members of yours who actually have a substance use disorder that might be opiates or cocaine. I have family members who have struggled. And, you know, just acknowledging that there's no way that any of your listeners does not have a contact with somebody in their lives, who has struggled. Because we all do at this point. You know, I read the obituaries every single day in the Greenfield Recorder. And oftentimes I know the people because I'm a longtime local doctor. But oftentimes I just know their story as associated with the people listed that they left behind. And so many of us have lost people to overdose. So many of us. I just came here from the little town of Orange, which is where I went to high school. I grew up in that area. in that part of the state Orange and Athol, and then the other part of the state, South Quabbin, Ware, Belchertown, those towns have a higher per capita rate of overdose death than any other part of our state. And that's our region. Those are our people. Those are who our kids are, are. That's where they go to high school and who they play against in a volleyball team. So stop thinking this isn't about you and and your community, because it is. It's about our community and our community health. And so I think most of us want our community to be be thriving. And so we need to help the people who need help. But how do we do that? What can I do? What can I do? (laughs) Well, you're running this podcast right now, which is great, and you're educating people. You know, I actually think just being supportive of people and um, being literally supportive of the Recover Project on Federal Street. And, How you know, do we do
0: that, Dr. Pote?
1: Well, I don't know. Maybe call them and say, hey, is there anything you guys need? Are you looking for contributions? Are you looking for clothes drop-offs? What can we do to be helpful to you? What can we do to help people who, who want long-term recovery? If you're an employer out there, employing somebody in long-term recovery is an awesome thing to do because what does it take to get better? One of the biggest things it takes to get better is to feel like you have self-worth and having a job gives you a sense of purpose, occupies time so that you're not bored. That is one of the most important things. If somebody has a history of incarceration, um, checking that box that says you have a quarry against you, well, it's going to keep you from working in the schools. That's a fact. But it shouldn't keep you from being able to have a job. People need to work. So people who are happy to employ folks who maybe have been incarcerated or on probation or have a history of a substance use, keep doing that work because people get better. You don't even know the people in your life who are in long-term recovery. They may not even talk about it with you because that's their private information, but they're running boards of things. They're running businesses. They're doing things that you don't even know. So don't presume everybody around you hasn't struggled. I actually presume many people around me have struggled.
0: I'm really glad to hear that. A different way of looking at the folks around us with a little bit more compassion. You know, I wanted to ask you a question, and you've you've kind of in the last few minutes, because we only have a few minutes left, but in the last few minutes, you might have answered it, but you've been working with folks for a long time, and I'd like to know how you have changed or what you have learned in working with addiction and folks who have, give me the term.
1: Substance use disorder.
0: (laughs) Substance use disorder. How has it affected you, not as a doctor, but as a person?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I had a brother who died when I was 22 years old. He died when he was 26. Um, I'm coming up on the anniversary of his death, and it's what made me become a doctor. I really feel like life is very, very fragile and that we don't have a very long time on this planet, and none of us know how long we have. Um, I think it's really made me better about understanding my own mortality and feeling um, so much more compassion for other people than I ever have before. Really like being able to sit present with somebody and be able to acknowledge where they are and think, well, that's good. That's where you are. And I'm going to work towards that. It's made me a much more um, patient centered human. And I don't know, it's, it's the most rewarding work I've ever done. I'm a 25 year doctor. And the work Um. I do with people who struggle with substance use is the most rewarding work I've ever done, partly because people actually do get better.
0: That's what we need to hold on to. People do get better. Mm -hmm. We seem to think like, oh, there's no hope here. But there is hope, isn't there?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Not everybody gets better on the same time frame that you might want, but they get better. And then sometimes they return to use a little bit, and then they continue to get better. But that's true for all of us because none of us are perfect.
0: None of us are perfect. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm going to hold on to that message, and I hope you do too. There is hope out there, and we have to be kind, and we have to look at people in different ways with more open hearts. I'm going to look at you as someone who has done such good work in the community, also someone who is really easy to talk with, and I think that's really important, and also as someone who has a cookie addiction, (laughs) as do I. (laughs) I'd like to ask you to come back and talk about so many other things that our community and the folks out there can benefit from. I hope you agree to do that.
1: I think I'd love to say yes. Thanks, Denise.
0: Thank you so much. It was great talking with you.